This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Cass Ingram, a.k.a. The Wilderness Doctor, is here in Hour 1 to talk about COVID-19 He'll also discuss several studies, as well as his own informal human trials, that have shown some promising results regarding wild oregano oil and several pathogens, including coronavirus. Uh, We're not talking about a cure here. We're just saying, based on the studies, this is something that's worth looking into further. Coming up in Hour 2, Dr. Al Prophet is a retired university professor and a paranormal researcher. He'll be here to discuss several of his fascinating investigations. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer, and Ryan White is the live stream producer. However, there is no live stream tonight. This program will be posted to my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, in the next several days. And by the way, we've reached 20,000 subscribers at Strange Planet, the YouTube channel. Let's get it to 21,000, shall we? Can you help? Cass Ingram is one of North America's leading experts on the health benefits and diseases and disease-fighting properties of wild medicinal spice extracts. Cass has written over 30 books on natural healing. He's given answers and hope to millions through lectures on thousands and on thousands of radio and television shows. His latest is COVID-19 Remedy. Dr. Cass Ingram, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Hey, hey, hey. It's been a a super pleasure. Great. How are you doing? Terrific. Are you sheltering in place, following all the protocols? Are you kidding? The only thing I'm doing is I refuse to go to a grocery store where they say, you can't come in here unless you're wearing something or you have a purple, purple shoes on. Forget it. I'm passing. I'll eat out of my freezer. That's the only sheltering. Otherwise, I'm just active. <laughs> God. But following social distancing and things no, like I'm that. No, I'm not doing any of that stuff. Are you kidding? I have COVID people coming to see me. I don't pay any attention to any of this stuff. I'm sorry. That's just me. <laughs> well, let, let's, let me ask you, first of all, right out of the chute here. We're hearing a lot now from U.S. intelligence and other quarters that this is not a, a, a natural 
a virus. In other words, it didn't evolve and then go from and jump from one animal species to humans, that it was somehow created, not necessarily as a bioweapon, but it was created in a lab. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's what I think we can say definitively. And definitive is a lot different than watching a bunch of YouTube videos and, 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 and you know, blogs, and you're not sure what you're seeing. In 1918, there was a problem. A lot of people died. It was from vaccines. I'm sorry. I just have to tell you. In uh, 1976, there was the swine flu. Okay? And it was in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and it was limited to about 200 people, including one serviceman dying. It was from the, uh, the, the vaccine they gave, the flu vaccine. In uh, 1977, it was the Russian flu, and the Russians and the Chinese were researching vaccines because they were worried about swine flu. It got out. They did a trial. It got out of the box, and it created a mini-pandemic. In 2009, we have H1N1, which the and farm industry made government change it to from swine flu to H1N1 to protect the industry. It was from inoculations given to pigs that mutated to have a human, a bird, and a pig gene. So what do you think this is? Something new that came from a bat? Yes, there is a problem. But it, it, rather than being created in the Wuhan lab, it could have just as easily been a vaccine that, that went sour. You know, because they were giving them to the pigs. Right. Now, here's confirm or deny what I've been reading and hearing and, you, and you've been seeing many of the same videos that I have and so forth is that for this virus, uh, which is basically SARS-2, yeah. uh, in order for it to um, evolve so that it could have jumped yeah. from, let's say, a bat to a human, that evolutionary process takes something like it could take up to 800 years. Yeah. But, but no, Sar- it, look, we've been around here a long time, since the caveman or something, I don't know. And we have no evidence that somebody ate a rat or a bat and caused, uh, uh, you know, the whole society to go sour. Uh, the whole world. It, it's not a good idea to go around eating rats and bats, but it couldn't mutate to the human being. And then, like you said, spread to China, to Korea, to Singapore, to Japan, then cruise ships, then uh, America and Italy and or Europe. No, it's impossible. So you can forget the wild animal to human. Uh, it's, it's finished, done. It didn't happen. But what's the closest animal to a human? It's the pig. What happened in China? 350 million pigs died from Human, they died from coronavirus infections in the last two years. Could it have jumped from bats to pigs to humans? Yes. Could it have been natural? I don't know. Was it likely vaccines that agitated it? Most likely. Was it a biolab accident? Probably not something that they were making and putting in a Petri dish. Probably that did not come out of the smokestack. Maybe some other mechanism. But... uh, uh, but, you know, here's the deal here, okay? The deal is the last five pandemics were from industrial farms and vaccines. The vaccines vaccines given to the pigs. Yeah, pigs, chickens. In this case, pigs. There were 
there were illicit vaccines being sold in China because they were desperate. So, and they were also homemade. Scientists trying to sell uh, their vaccines, making it up illegally, through, not through the government channel, and and giving it to the, and selling it to the pig farmers, selling it to the uh, in, industrial farms. But this is all published in the Chinese literature. Uh, and by the way, top scientists in China. They've not been that unforthcoming. They actually, you can find truth there. They published a study in 2019, March, that, look, we're going to have a problem here. We are seeing a virus that has originated in bats, now to swine, in the swine population, and then it will go to humans and we'll have a pandemic. This was seven months before the outbreak. Um, that's what we do know. And there's lots more to it. All right. So let me just get your take on a couple of other things. First of all, this quarantine, which just seems to be interminable. Uh, we yep. are now, I believe, in our seventh or eighth week up here in Canada. Um, is it, I mean, is it working? How do we, what's the science behind this, that this is the way to tackle this problem, given that, so for example, in Sweden, yes, they've had nearly 3,000 deaths, but we don't know the, the number of cases uh, because of, you know, lack of widespread testing, unless you know the denominator, yeah. the case fatality rate is, you know, you can't know it, but they haven't destroyed their economy in the process. That's the point. Yeah. Here's, here's what we do know. If you have a, uh, a breakout of a drug resistant bacteria in a hospital, you have to quarantine the patient. But we have no data, no proof that quarantining a society would have anything, any positive benefit whatsoever for a, a global spread of, of, of a sort of a animal virus or some sort of mutated virus. We have no proof. It's just done on supposition. Uh, and Sweden's done okay. We've, we've not done too well. Uh, you know, as America, 70,000 deaths. Canada's done well. This this is a pocket disease. You have to deal with the pockets. That's what China and Korea did. Not not quarantine a society. No. Well, let me ask you quickly then about the the fatality, the the, the way that the mortality is being reported. Because Dr. Bricks, who's on the uh, the task force, the coronavirus task force, yeah. she said very early on, and this is not a direct quote, but she. And people can go and check this. She said, we are being very liberal when reporting mortality. In other words, and then she went on to say, if you have, if you have, uh, COVID-19, in other words, if you die with it, we're reporting that as a COVID-19 death. Now, that's not the way we normally <laughs> approach these things. No, so can it, we trust it, it, that 70,000 figure? Yeah, it would have. There's two things. Uh, first, she should not do that. She, if, if the pathology, uh, report shows massive COVID-19 viral infection of the lungs, then report it. And if the, if the pathology report doesn't show that, then you cannot report it legitimately as because it, it, could, it could be the comorbidity issues and the virus is incidental. Uh, no, this is completely aberrant, bizarre, never done before. The second issue is that we don't know how many fatalities occur in somebody's home. What we do know is that there's a monstrous number of deaths in the hospitals, nursing homes. Now, let's look at that. There's an 80 to 90 percent death rate for intubation 
plus respirator. In some centers, it's 97%, China reported. Uh, so, and then the nursing home. So you, so you have, then you have the issue of drugs. If you, if you give drugs for the influenza, you'll kill the patient. It's the same with COVID-19. You cannot give drugs of any kind. You will interfere with the immune system and the patient will die more at a far more rapid rate. There's some question whether the hydroxychloroquine is working. I think they're saying that if we add zinc to it, it does, and I'll get to that. But drugs are a bad idea with viral infections, uh, especially the cold and flu. Well, here the thing is, once when they when they put someone on a ventilator, that's incredibly eva- um, invasive, invasive, and incredibly stressful. Like people panic because you're oh, having yeah, this. Too, so they so they give them a sedative. They might even give them morphine. That's suppressing the immune system. There's, there's two things there. There's the issue of the common drugs like indocin, prednisone, and uh, perhaps uh, the remdesivir and these different antivirals. The second serious issue is exactly what you said. The only way you can control an, a ventilated patient is to sedate them. And that's catastrophic to the respiratory system. The absolute worst chance you're going to give a person is to give them sedative drugs while they're on a respirator, or even if they are not. If they have the flu, you can't sedate them. The body's fighting to get this stuff out, respiring, in exhalation, inhalation, and you're going to suppress the respiratory system. You're going to cause fluid accumulation and collapse of the lungs. Uh, and if you give Indocin and Motrin, you'll cause the lungs to bleed and the patient will die. There's two things. The mechanical ventilation and the drugs, there's a third one, secondary bacterial infection from a mechanical device like MRSA. So we're being very liberal. If they died of MRSA, we'll say they died of COVID. So we're actually hastening their death by putting them on a ventilator. There's no question about that. You would see a much reduced fatality rate if nobody was put on a respirator and you take your chances. I'll definitively prove that one day with a retrospective study. But I think everybody knows. Here's the other thing, quickly, and then we'll we'll uh, move on. And that is, um, Medicare will will pay four thousand dollars to a hospital for just a regular hospital admission. If that patient is diagnosed as having COVID nineteen, Medicare now pays thirteen thousand dollars. If they're placed on a ventilator. The hospital gets thirty nine thousand dollars, and I'm not saying go. I'm not saying doctors are complicit in this, but hospital administrators hospital now could be the administrator. Look, they're bankrupt, or they're nearly bankrupt, and now they're double bankrupt because nobody's going to the hospital. So yes, they would be tempt. There would be temptation to put everybody on a respirator that's possible. And I can tell you, I had a couple people on a respirator and supposed to go on, and I helped them get off and go home, and and that cost them about fifty cents a day. <laughs> so there's, so you don't have to do a respirator. So it looks uh, like we're, 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 we can't really trust the data, number one. And number two, we, we may be making a huge mistake in, in the way that we're treating people. Oh, yeah. And what about Cuomo's blunder? It's not only treating them uh, medically, but socially, how we're interacting with the human race is not a pretty deal. You're saying masks, bad idea. One thing is the masks, but Cuomo actually took active COVID patients and and transferred them to nursing homes. But you cannot go in and see your loved one. 
active COVID patients in the ER in the different areas, but you can't go in and you're a healthy adult to see your loved one and help them pass over. They're, this is the most uh, ruthless uh, example of modern medicine. I mean, the most revelation that you're going to block the, your, your son from seeing the mother, your husband from seeing the wife, the wife from seeing the husband. They're not allowed in. Yeah. No, no, this is heart wrenching. When you think of there are small children, maybe cancer patients, and they're dying surrounded by I know healthcare workers are, are, are wonderful and they're loving, but they're not yeah. the mom and dad. We have children dying basically alone. Yes, and, yes, 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 that's happening. If they've been plunged with plungered with the COVID diagnosis, no one is allowed or will be they'll be I was just told by a person we can't go in, we'll be arrested, and we will go, we go to prison. Uh, that's the threat. Yeah, that's to me is the most heart-wrenching aspect of this, the idea. And I know I've been to these, I hope this is an artifact that will be relegated to the dustbin of history. I went to my first or attended my first Zoom funeral uh, where no no mourners are allowed at gravesite. They have a computer sitting on a near a headstone, and they they video they video essentially uh, the funeral uh, Zoom funerals. Okay, so let's um, let's talk. I've known you for probably a quarter century, as hard as that is to believe. And uh, around that time, you had a, a book out called "The Cure Is in the Cupboard." Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you you talk about or or there's another one about you know in the supermarket and we're talking yeah. about um, natural remedies, food, essentially uh, spices, herbs that can be used to combat certain pathogens. Yes. And ever since then, uh, the the establishment, uh, uh, Facebook, predictably, they've all really come down hard on on you uh talk to me a little bit about what that's been like and 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 from what quarters are you being attacked well for me it's uh it's the medical uh, establishment industrial pharmaceutical they don't want me to be in practice so they they basically uh, destroyed my ability to be licensed now uh, that was through being set up with a private detective posing as a patient to try to get me to charge excessive fees, which I didn't, but whatever fees I charged was, I think, $1,000 for each patient, and there were two of them. They claimed that the fees were excessive, and I didn't do a year analysis, and I should have, and I put the patient at risk, and, and, and all kind of stupidity. 38 counts. Uh, I had a, um, a heart attack. I knew I was, I was going to lose my license. I recovered on my own without hospitalization. But what I did was I... I hired some private detectives posing as a patient to go on the board of medical examiners. And the medical examiners defrauded my private investigators. Well, this is why I was being prosecuted. So all of a sudden, when I put that data on the judge's counter, all of a sudden, the counts went from 38 to 1. And the final count, for which I lost my 12 years of licensure work, you know, it took me 12 years to get to the license only three years to practice, and then I was done, um, was he, he, he didn't get us the patient files in a timely manner, so he will irrevocably lose his license. You know, by that time, I was so tired and sick of it. I just just taken stuff it. 
<laughs> but, you know, in a sense, I'm happy because I learned, uh, I, I wrote my books, and, and I, I started preaching about herbal medicine. So it was for a reason. Right. And But even more recently, uh, and we're going to talk about the new book, COVID-19, The COVID-19 Remedy, uh, yeah. and and you've been... Uh, I'm you've been, still. I'm being attacked. Yeah. Yeah, particularly because of uh, uh, you are very enthusiastic uh, about the oil of wild oregano. Yes. Yes. I. Yes. The drug companies have hired a hitman, this a silly professor. I don't even want to mention it. And he's got a video and different comments. The, I, he, he was given five million dollars to go after what they call our quacks, right? So he's put. They put the big focus on me. Because the, uh, my work is a threat to industrial pharmaceutical. Huge. Monster threat. And so that's where they're focusing. And, and that's mainly the, the, my discovery of the oil of wild oregano. That's what they want to seem to undermine. You know, when Facebook trended my, my research on oil of oregano as an antiseptic here during this COVID outbreak, it went to 2,000 Facebooks in, in like 72 hours. And then uh, Facebook was contracted to change the algorithm and to ditch it and dump it. And so now it's not trending anymore. Along with Google and Twitter, they all went against my work. New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post all went against this work so that people wouldn't research uh, the data and find out they could actually do something about these uh, epidemics and the threats to them and their loved ones. And so that's what I'm up against right now. Was it was it the L.A. Times that said there's a special place in hell reserved for you? Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's what they were indicating because they said that the, whoever this promoter is, he's trying to make a buck on oil of oregano. <laughs> Anybody that does that it, uh, deserves a special place in the hell. Yes, they did say it. You can see that published. Well, we're we're going to head into a break here, uh, Cass. But when we come back, we'll talk about uh, several scientific studies that have looked at not only wild of oregano oil, but other uh, spices and herbs and how they uh, how they dealt with a number of potentially deadly uh, pathogens. We'll talk about that and more. Dr. Cass Ingram, his new book, The COVID-19 Remedy, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back, Dr. Cass Ingram. My guest is brand new book, COVID-19 Remedy, The Real Truth Revealed. And, um, First of all, how do we get a copy of that book? Because is it still well, available for free? all your listeners are going to get the electric free. The electric uh, version is free. Yeah, you know, we got to do something about this. I will have a hardback version, or, I mean a, a, a book, and the book will be in May sometime. But this one, go to CassIngram.com and you download it. Get it while you can. Uh, CassIngram.com, there it is right there. All right, and again, the electronic version is free. Uh, well, for the time being, anyway. But as yeah, soon as for the, the time being, uh, so get it uh, and spread it around. Get everybody to get a copy and bind it up, and you've got your book. All right, I want to talk to you. Uh, we were we mentioned oil of oregano oil, and um, talk to me about there was a study done 
And the uh, the lead scientist in the study actually went into the study intending to debunk uh, the effectiveness of of uh, certain spice extracts and, I keep and herbs. Forgetting about all that it's been up against. Yes, Dr. F. Andron at the University of Tennessee Knoxville, coordinated by the federal government, before she even did the study. The objective was. There's somebody on the radio talking about oil of oregano, and he's written this book, The Cures in the Cupboard. we got to hit him. So what we have to do is prove that he's a fraud so we can go after him and all of his, uh, uh, you know, all of his work. So she said, look, my objective was just to take the oil of oregano, which was the P73, of course, and prove it was useless, that it would be a useless endeavor to use it, that it's not an antiseptic, that all of the... Uh, all of the commentary is fraudulent and fake. So she took it and put it in against deadly pathogens, and the oregano ate them up. She excoriated her lab tech, saying, you must have used chlorinated water. You've got to go back and use the distilled water. It came back, and the oregano ate the socks off of these germs. She sent it a third time, a fourth time. Every time, the oregano in a dilution of like one in a thousand destroyed the germs. And so That's how hard it's been. Uh, So we're talking about these pathogens. We're talking about things like E. coli, uh, food food poisoning. Um, What other types of... We don't know at first what she did because she did it secretly. Then, once they determined that it was effective, this is what they did. They sought to patent it. You see, this is the tyranny that you get, that the whole country's up against, all the whole world. So they, they took 450 million U.S. dollars, taxpayer money, with the objective of, of making a uh, patentable drug. Because at the end of the researcher research, Ms. Drawn said, I'm a believer now. I think we should turn it into a drug. And she even, what she did was, we kept tuna fish completely fresh. For 60 days with the, I'm sure they used the P73, the oil of oregano. It was edible after two months. You know how tuna fish goes bad in three days. Right. And that, yes, they killed nine deadly pathogens. That's true. But the spices weren't researched, just the oils. And they then researched nine oils, and the most powerful one was the oregano oil, without doubt. And and what other, do we know what other pathogens uh, were used in the study? Yes, salmonella, they tested food poisoning molds. Uh, I believe Shigella was in the mix, Pseudomonas, and uh, a staph was in that mix. Yeah. yeah a lot of pathogens. Was, was it doesn't this a, matter anyway. Oregano eats, eats the pathogen. If was, it's this a virus, a, it, was it a peer-reviewed study? It's a, it's a significant study published in the Journal of Food Protection. It's a major journal. Uh, you know, in, I, I, it was carefully designed, and it was funded to to the tune of uh, four hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's that's a significant study. Right, right. And you mentioned it, the um, the tuna because what they did with with uh, with that is they created a uh, an edible sort of food wrap. I think they and yes. originally it was with spinach, and we know spinach is very susceptible to things like E. coli, and it, it goes bad very quickly. So they were they were protecting the spinach using a this edible coating that was made out of what? From the uh, oil of oregano? Well, they, they put oil of oregano, cinnamon oil, because the cinnamon did pretty well in there. And you know, uh, this was the USDA's ancillary research. 
what happened was USDA contacted me before this was published and said, hey, you know what, we want some of your oregano oil. Man, we, 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 about four of them on the phone. I sent it to them. When they did their study, and they did two or three of these, they used tomatoes, they used spinach. They, they, they also made a disc, a film disc that they patented. They would put the cinnamon and the oregano oil in that disc so that they could use that disc for luncheon meats against listeria, uh, you know, to prevent staph, to prevent E. coli, to prevent whatever in vegetation as well. But that disc is made out of food. It's made out of pureed apples, pureed, and that's patented now. Um, so that was, you know, the U.S. government and sciences, scientists sought to profit from my work. At the same time, they did everything to prevent me from getting the word out to the public. That's the, that's the moral of what happened. Because I, they asked for my cooperation, which I, I freely gave to them. And, and I'm doing that now. I'm saying, look, you've got the expert who started the whole industry right here that could stop this so-called pandemic and, and put a stop to the deaths uh, needlessly in the nursing homes, as well as the hospitals, as well as the people uh, contracting the disease. So, um, but yeah, it's been nothing but resistance. Even From though the medical license to the research, and now this, this professor, all sorts of people being solicited to stop this guy. That's you know when I went up to um, to Toronto, or I met with the top distributor for natural supplements, and there was an arms dealer from Ottawa who they said I had to meet. He said, "Look, Doctor Ingram, we're taking over the oregano oil business." You know, he was an Ottawa. A lobbyist, politician. Here's my partner from overseas. You're going to be on the curb with a tin cup begging for change when we're done with you. That happened in 1999. <laughs> I didn't get into this to get to fight with people. I mean, I my job is above all do no harm and to uh, you know help people come into life, help them pass through peaceably with free of disease. And help them ease them out. You know, it hurts me so much, Mr. Serrett, to see what's going on. To see what's happening in, in these people. You no, know, you're not allowed to see your loved one. You can't do that to people. You will ruin them permanently. I wouldn't be surprised if the suicide rate goes up 100, 500%. Well, can- that's right. They're, not, they're giving us all these models that were faulty from this Professor Ferguson at the Imperial College. This was the guy that predicted mad cow disease would kill something like 200,000 people in the UK alone. It ended up killing 277. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's, yeah. Uh, and, and, but here's the thing. I, I want to go back to the study for a moment because this was a, a published study which showed oil of oregano a, a very effective in killing uh, E. coli and, and different things like that. But it's an in vitro study, right? It's in a test tube or a Petri dish. This, this would be kind of an in vitro. It would have been inside the uh, – they, they would have put the bacteria into food and, and see if the oregano oil would work in that environment. It was in vitro. And the tuna fish is in vitro. My work on coronavirus, influenza, and bird flu was in vitro. But you know, these universities are compromised. The professors are scared. The doctors told me we're not going to do any research for you in humans because we'll be fired. 
we'll lose our job, we'll lose our privileges at the hospital. I've already been through this. Uh, it's difficult to get anybody to do the human work. But, however, I'll tell you this, because you might be listening and thinking, what about COVID, doctor? You're not mentioning I have a human clinical trial going on now on my own where I have nurse practitioners, I have uh, ex-drug reps, and I have a doctor who are giving their COVID-19 and their viral flu customers, they're giving them the oil of oregano, the sinuorega. I think, no, I think the protocol is the oil of oregano, the juice, and oregoresp or the gel caps. Anyway, that's kind of... So I'm not speaking for the company, but I am doing this. I am sending what samples I have in my stock to the doctors, to the nurses, and I'll, you know the results are pretty spectacular. Um, you know we'll get into it, but but yeah, nobody's going to help. The government won't help, uh, and and the industrial pharmaceutical complex is fighting, uh, resisting. Okay, we just. Using their- we have about a minute, and we'll talk about this more in depth on the other side of the break. But just in the next minute, just t- tell me a little bit about uh, your studies with oil of oregano and wild oregano and yeah. bird flu, so etc. I, I had a good Samaritan who gave, and I've got this written up in my case histories, who gave her neighbor, who was on a respirator, the oil of wild oregano. Uh, his wife or whoever rubbed it on his feet two drops twice a day, and two drops on his calves and shins. Within two days, the doctor yanked the respirator and said, your, your, your panels are so good, your profiles, no more respirator for you. Within two more days, he checked out of the hospital. He took only oil of oregano, no claims for any of the companies who make it. This is just me as a doctor in my book, and also this oregoresp material. That's what the health food store owner gave. Those two products only. Uh, I think there may be one other. Here's another case. This was a person who was given, 17-year-olds, a potential death sentence. And, and he, instead, he got a hold of the oil of wild oregano super strength. He put it in a diffuser. He's a 17-year-old. And he was about to go to the hospital, but just keep, he kept inhaling every hour the diffused oil. And he took some capsules of the same. Uh, he did not go to the hospital. He did not get the double pneumonia. He did recover. All right. I've got to take a time out. We'll come back. Dr. Cass Ingram, the COVID-19 remedy right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Hey, if you like The Conspiracy Show, you're going to love my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And now there's Conspiracy Unlimited Plus. For just $1.99 per month, you can gain access to my vast back catalog of over 350 episodes. Plus, you get two commercial-free bonus episodes every month. Commercial-free. Just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes. Go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes. Dr. Cass Ingram is here. His brand new book is The COVID-19 Remedy, and it is available for free as an electronic download from CassIngram.com. C-A-S-S-I-N-G-R-A-M. 
and you can just uh, click on, if you go to strangeplanet.ca, click on uh, Dr. Cass Ingram's name and it'll take you right to the website. And that's a free download for the time being until the book is is uh, published in hard copy. Now, we have to say a couple of things. First of all, you know, the old medical disclaimer, uh, this is, um, you know, we can't say that this is a cure uh, for anything. But right. it has shown in some studies that it is very effective against certain pathogens. You have done some of your own human trials. This is anecdotal, but yes, anecdotal it's, human it, trials, right. it looks promising and it deserves further study. We can say that much. It deserves I think we can further say study. That. And I think we need to say that there's some data here. Uh, oregano oil is 21 times more powerful as a phenolic compound than Lysol. Uh, so, you know, because you got Trump saying, can we do anything to clean these things out? You know, and the idea was at least all right. But no, I mean, you, you cannot take a synthetic and you cannot breathe chlorine. You can't put it on your skin. You'll burn and kill yourself. But the fact that it's 21 times more powerful than the synthetics that we're spraying on the streets has to be looked at. Right. hundred percent. So get back to that 17 year old. He, you said he had a death sentence. Was he did he have a comorbidity that, that it was so serious? He was an orphan and sort of malnourished uh, and no father figure. His grandfather was sick with the COVID, and he didn't know that. He gave this child the sickness. The grandfather was in the hospital. He was about to join him. That was the situation. So they're going to put me on a respirator. That's what they're planning. And, and that's when a good Samaritan pitched him a couple of products, dropped them off on the quarantine porch, and he took it. And it's a case we're writing up. A third interesting case, and all this, look, all we're saying is that we should look at this. This case was uh, through a nurse practitioner, and she's a physical therapist. We have it written up. She was about to be intubated, and she said, I think I'm going to die. I saw the text. They don't want me to publish the text. They're afraid the hospital and the physical therapist will lose, you know, there will be problems. So I'll publish the case history instead. The girl said, or the practitioner said, no, don't give up. Uh, and so she smuggled in a bottle of oregano spray, oregano bay leaf spray. The woman was instructed, and she sprayed it four times on the back of her throat. Her respiration improved so dramatically that the physician said, we will not intubate you. And within 72 hours, she checked out of the hospital. This is a physical therapist. This is no minor issue. You know, in terms of someone that knows, uh, her oxygen profile improved, and she eventually did not need any more oxygen. Now, I have a hundred of these cases that we have to look at, some through a doctor, some through a nurse, some through myself, um, and they're all equally dramatic, some even more dramatic. And this is an interesting case of a guy who had double pneumonia, who was given prednisone and was told to go home, uh, and there's nothing more we can do about it. And who has then said, I have to go back to the hospital, doctor. I really do. I'm, I think I'm going to die. So I said, why don't you do this? They're going to take you if they have to take you anyway. We're not going to interfere with that. But take the oil of wild oregano, something called super strength, and take 10 to 15 drops every half hour. He, he stopped the double pneumonia symptoms and the big pressure on the chest. It still stayed a bit, but he stopped the crisis in 24 hours, the crisis was shut down. The fact that this is working within minutes to 24 hours, you have to look at it. You right. can't just keep 
beating up on it and making fun and belittling and, and, and doing all sorts of scandalous attacks, your whole cut, the whole nation is shuttered. Exactly. I mean, the whole world. We're in a war here. And in, in, in war, you, you, you can't, you have to look at everything. We're in a desperate strait yes. here. Yes. Listen, we'll take another we time desperate. out. When we come back, well, I want to talk about your, your uh, studies with wild of oregano oil and uh, the bird flu and, and uh, some other things. And we'll find out what happened. Uh, Cass Ingram, the author of COVID-19 Remedy. Back with more in a moment, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Dr. Cass Ingram, the COVID-19 remedy available as a free electronic download at CassIngram.com. And uh, it's available for free for a short while. So make sure you get your download again. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on uh, Dr. Cass Ingram's name. That'll take you right to the website. Then just download the uh, the book, the electronic version for free. It'll be available as uh, in hard copy form uh, very soon. So you, you did your own uh, in vitro studies with wild of oregano oil and things like the bird flu, which is a very, very de- deadly, potentially. Oh, extremely deadly. And, and think about this. What's going to happen to our society if bird flu breaks out which and, 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 and migrates from person to person? If it becomes virulent enough that it can uh, infect from you to two or three others, and on it goes, it's 60% fatal, right? So I wasn't that interested in bird flu, but what we did was an, an in vitro study published in antiviral research and abstract form and presented before the peers, where we took the, the bird flu and influenza A, as well as the human coronavirus, and infected it in cell culture. So that gives me 5 million viruses per every centimeter of fluid and cells. That's a lot of viruses, 5 to 10 million. So then I can put in something. I could put in corn. I could put in isopropyl alcohol. I could do whatever. Instead, we put in oil of wild oregano. So we have an intracellular virus now. It's not just a Petri dish. And it obliterated 99.99% in two minutes of these 5 million per centimeter of blood. So we have, say, See, we have a billion viruses that went down to basically nothing. By 20 minutes, it went down to 150 dead, basically dead viruses. In other words, the viruses could not regrow. As long as you kept some oregano oil in the medium, nothing. That's one dose in 20 minutes, by the way. So then we did the same with influenza. We had 10 million viruses per centimeter of blood. We gave the oil of wild oregano super strength. And we also used something that you know and I both, we both take called oregoresp, which is cumin, oregano, sage, and cinnamon. So we gave both. And the oregoresp in the coronavirus, by the way, it reduced it not to 150, but to zero. So there was non-detectable. It seemed that this multiple spice worked a little quicker than even the oil of oregano, but they're both good. Okay. So in this case, we dropped it to 99.99% in two minutes and to, to virtually nothing by, uh, by the 20 minutes. So now you've got the bird flu, right? I mean, that's going to be different than something that's 0.01% fatal or 1% fatal for corona, I guess. But this was the human corona. It wasn't the same. But this doesn't make that much difference. But bird flu, we know, is 50 to 60%. So they, they came to me and they said, it, 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 it didn't work. I said, what do you mean it didn't work? I said, what kind of a dose did you use? Oh, the same. The same dose for flu? And this is 50. 
you know, this is a thousand times more fatal? I said, yes, put 25 times the dose. <laughs> and it worked. 99.99% destruction in two minutes. What does that mean? That means that if you keep making fun of natural medicine instead of looking into it, if the bird flu broke out, the whole world would be done. We're finished. Because we've made so much fun, belittled, pushed down, uh, propagandized. The, 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 look, you know what God says? Hey, man, you don't believe in God? That's okay. I, I feel sorry for you, but I happen to think it's a good idea. He says in the Old Testament, look, I, I'm not a scripture expert. It says something about cleaning yourself out with hyssop, which is from the Hebrew esoph. It only means wild oregano. It doesn't mean anything else. So there's only one recommendation anywhere in a scripture for an herb, a specific herb, to be using it. And it's the oregano in the mountains. Wild oregano. Clean. Trump wasn't too far off. <laughs> right, right. What, what is it about wild oregano, the oil? Uh, what is the active ingredient? It's a phenolic carvacrol, thymol, small amount, and terpenes, various terpenes. There are about 30 different ones. They're all antiseptic. Uh, there's two mechanisms of action. One is that it cleans things. It, it actually will dis- and our, our work showed that it disintegrated the viruses. That's like cleaning. So, so it, it, it destroys those little spicules, for example, on corona. It destroys the, the shell of the vac- capsid of the virus. It destroys the, the, the cell wall of the bacteria and the guts leak out, and then it eats the guts. It's like an eating agent. The second mechanism is it induces the immune system to, to do a better job at cleaning a pathogen. The third is interesting. It's anti-cytokine. You know that cytokine storm that leads to so much trouble with the flu or with double pneumonia? That's the immune system uh, attacking itself, ta- attacking the basically body. Basically, it's, it's an overreaching immune system. And the explosiveness of the germ with the immune system and the body cannot defeat the inflammation quick enough and they check out. Uh, and that's a gene. And the gene is turned down 50 to 70% by the oregano. Can you imagine just take a little tube that you have, a little uh, cafe ray tube radio, you tune that down to just a little whisper. Then you could survive. Right. Black and- seed oil does it too. Black seed uh, oil. Human, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, they do. You know, we, we need to do something. I've got the black seed miracle we talked before, but that's a powerful lung uh, lung maintenance uh, supplement. You know, that uh, the two together would be inf- uh, indivisible or undefeatable. Just, right. You mentioned the spicules, and this is the the part of the, the coronavirus uh, from from which it gets its name because it, it looks like a crown, and that's what corona is. So these spicules, that's like the key that unlocks uh, the door allowing the virus entry into our cells, correct? That is correct. That is, if without the spicules, it's even even if the rest of the cell is there, it's it's a dead duck. It can't do anything. So it it is killing the spicules. It's destroying oregano. Them. Eats, oregano oil eats the spicules. Cinnamon oil does too. This is not a bay leaf oil. Eats. These essential oils they melt those spicules. They're done. the The whole thing is finished. If we could just popularize. An antiseptic spray with oregano base, bay leaf would be great. The two together are pretty powerful. They're both, remember, the Greeks used to wear that wreath on their heads. Why do you think they did that? To protect them from, that's the bay leaves, to protect them from plague. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. 
And so if we could popularize something like that in the subways and the airplanes, if we could, if we could popularize oil of oregano as a preventive, this would be done. We would interrupt the viral transmission and we would be back to normal. But we need to popularize in the nursing homes and in the, in the hospitals, the front line. And in the meantime, uh, you you could you could use it. I'm guessing to uh, as a cleaner to spray sinks. Oh, you could. Yeah, you could either put the oil in, or you're better off to get the actual spray. It's called a rega spray to help your listeners, and you can dilute it ten to one with water, and then use it around the house five to one. For your own personal use, you can use it full strength, like the woman that was laying there that was going to get intubated. And here, here's what. Here's what I'm astonished from, though, more than these two mechanisms. How could several of these people get dramatically better from two drops under the tongue twice a day or three times a day? How? There's an energy. This is a filth vaccine, maybe, you know, most likely pig or whatever. It's a filth disease lab. It's filthy. It's garbage. And, you know, Wuhan market, I don't care. And you're giving something from the highest energy. So it's energy, it's a soul, it's a, it's a miracle energy that something mountain-grown where nothing else can grow on the rock, you extract its essence. So it's doing something we don't understand. It's resetting the body for these people. It's allowing the body to function. No one will be able to figure out this thing. Well, we're not saying it's the cure. We're saying it deserves to be researched and looked into and, and based on your uh, anecdotal and, and uh, sort of limited, we have to say that, human trials, yes. it is showing tremendous promise. It and, is, and I, I quote the case histories in the book. I'll quote more. They're legitimate. They're accurate. I have some individual cases where the person wrote me a letter on my website. You've got to do something to, to look at this world. You can't just deny that this is in the Old Testament to sort of warn people. Why do you think it's there? You know, pork flesh is also warned against, right? So you're going to ignore it all and let the world shut down and let, the world, let people start punching themselves out in the street, which you're already doing. Uh, and the one guy got shot because he told somebody they should wear a mask. They whipped out a six-shooter and shot him in the head, killed him at a, at a convenience store. I mean, you know, this, this is enough. Enough, an indeed. End to it, and I know how to do it. The COVID-19 remedy, go to CassIngram.com, download your free electronic version while it lasts. Dr. Cass Ingram, always a pleasure. Thank you for this. You betcha. Bye now. Dr. Al Prophet is next to discuss his career in paranormal investigation. Stay with us. Stay with us into Hour 2 of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Live from Toronto, Canada. Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me to your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Dr. Al Prophet is with us this hour to discuss some of his paranormal investigations, haunted houses, a haunted battleship, and one supposed possessed individual. Dr. Prophet is a recently retired professor from the University of North Carolina system. He's lived in the Appalachian Mountains his entire life. 
and was born and raised in the southern coal fields of West Virginia. He graduated with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Marshall University. He earned his doctorate from West Virginia University in 1990. He's been a professor in three universities, superintendent of schools in two states, a school principal, guidance counselor, assistant principal, teacher, and coach. He's an award-winning singer-songwriter and has appeared on stage with American jazz icons Dizzy Gillespie and James Moody. In his senior year of high school, he was offered but turned down an apprenticeship with the American Wind Symphony Orchestra. He studied the psychical sciences since completing his high school project on ghosts. Dr. L. Prophet, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am doing very well, Richard, and I hope you are as well. Likewise. You have had, to say the least, a varied career in music, in education, uh, and in the paranormal, and some might find those intersections rather unusual. Talk to me about how that that came to be, education and the paranormal. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, I guess as so many paranormal investigators say, they were they were raised in a haunted house, and the same would be said for me. So I had that experience, and I had parents who didn't try to tell me that I was crazy, but they had had experiences as well, and, and they taught me, Two basic lessons uh, with this, and the first one has always been important and a central part of my life, is that you treat everybody with dignity and respect regardless of their skin, regardless of their religion, regardless of anything about them, and to extend that to the paranormal realm as well. So I've never been someone who would try to provoke or... You know, I've heard of people like going somewhere and, and urinating on a grave. And, and to me, you know, I just don't think that there's any excuse for that. So anyway, I, I had that. And then as I was coming through high school, we had to write a, a major project, um, as so many do. And so kind of, as, you know, tongue in cheek, I went and told one of my teachers that I'd like to write on ghosts. And um, there was a committee of teachers, and, and I told her not only did I want to write on ghosts, I wanted three of my friends to work with me on the paper. So she said, well, she would see and get back to me. So she talked with the other uh, students involved who were three top-notch students. And uh, she then brought me back to her office, and she, she told me that if I thought that telling her a few ghost stories was going to be a, a high school project, that was not it. And she taught, she, she actually made sure that I learned certain things that I was still using when I studied my doctorate. One was the scientific method, and one was serious research. So we had to find that place that had the reputation of being haunted and stay there. You, you, know, you know, maybe overnight, get permission, all that kind of thing. You know, we were still in school. And, and so I did that, and we come up with absolutely nothing at that place. But that would change once I graduated from school. But anyway, uh, you know, there was a couple things that in, in education, you switch over from the paranormal. One of the things that, the, that, that they taught me there was the, the scientific method. And the other thing that they taught me was the value in working crop, you know, as cooperatively as you could with other people. So it was like peer learning together and using the scientific method. And honestly, that those are skills that I used all through college, through my bachelor's, my master's, and then especially my doctorate. So I owe them a debt that I don't think I'll ever be able to repay. But um, 
the house that we investigated when I was in, uh, I was a, a senior. When we actually would start to go back there, it became a place. It was maybe 25, 30 miles from us, and uh, it was in a state park. And it was actually the first settlement of this area uh, of that county. And so we just, it, it became a really good place for us to camp. And, you know, we had shelter from, you know, it was a three-story house. We had shelter from rain and that kind of stuff. The radio was remarkably clear because there was nothing around it as far as other, as any electricity and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people will say when I'm leading up to this, well, I bet you all were doing all kinds of mind-altering things. And we weren't. We were doing zero mind-altering things. And... um but we were there. There were four. I was there. It was one one night, and you know, one of the things about studying the paranormal as well, I feel, is that so much of it is you're going to, you know, people are not going to believe you, and there's no way that you can prove it, or people's going to believe it, and you know, and don't even listen to reason on the other side. But anyway, there were four of us, and we had returned, and this was the the, the summer. I think that I'd graduated from high school and we were staying there and we always uh, took our stuff up to the third floor and we took probably what was a bedroom and there was no furniture or anything like that. So we had sleeping bags. We had the old Coleman lantern with the mantle and uh, we had a, a radio with us that, uh, you know, just like, yeah, I know it might be hard for some of the kids to understand today, but radio was our link to the world, FM radio and right. and, and AM. And we had it on uh, the, the strongest signal that we could get or the strongest station. And it was out of Richmond, Virginia, and they were playing classical music, which basically we all liked. We were rock and rollers, but we liked that classical music as well. And so um, we it was getting – I also had a, a tape recorder that was, was battery-driven. And uh, by that time, um, we were just uh, fooling around. This was a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and this is one of the things that I, I will pat my teachers on the back for, too. They told me that I had to have more ways to, to do this, so I, I saved up and, and got a – or to do this. When I say do this, I mean to record to see if you offer some proof. And so we recorded hours of stuff up there, but by that time, we were just – you know, we were talking over it and, and the whole thing. But anyway, this was the sequence of events that happened. And this was my first experience with the paranormal outside of my own home. This is West Virginia, it, correct? This was in West Virginia, yes. Right. And yes. how did your, let me just ask you, how did your parents feel, all of your parents, feel about you going and spending oh, a night in a haunted house? Uh, well, my parents didn't mind it at all. They thought that they had uh, trained me fairly well, <laughs> you know, to be respectful. And they, they also had experience at that time. Uh, I was also playing in, in somewhat of a regionally uh, popular rock and roll band. So they were not used, they, they were used to me being gone, you know, the entire weekend, you know, because we would just stay where we could. It was, it, it was the very best possible job, you know, after school, summer job that a high school kid could have is being a drummer for a rock and roll band. And so we, they, they were kind of used to that. The other parents, I think, sort of trusted my parents that if I was going to stay there, it must be okay. Okay. And, and, and my parents knew the, the, these three guys real, real well. Right. So also, let me ask you also, so, the, the, the reputation sure. of this haunted house, what was the reputation? Uh, the, the reputation, that's a great question, Richard. The, the reputation 
was that um, there were uh, the, the house had been abandoned. And it had been somebody very wealthy had owned it, the Bowers family. But anyway, that there was these hunters that were on the property, and they were hunting after the home had been abandoned, and they had a child with them. It was it was two grown men, and I, I guess they were, you know, in West Virginia, that was not unusual because we were taught, you know, how to hunt and, and all that sort of thing. So they had him there. So when uh, they went in to the home, um, I don't know if it was as a joke or whatever, uh, and this is just as a folk legend anyway, but they put him in uh, a room that was under the stairs, and they, they locked him in there. And throughout the evening, he was screaming, please, or something in here with me, please let me out, please let me out. And as you can guess, they didn't. And as legend have it, when they opened up the door, the young man had clawed both of his eyes out and bled to death through his eye sockets. Oh, my. And, yeah, so, you know, that's – and I remember that because we had to get the background uh, and, and talk to people to get that story of people who knew of the house, and that was a part of my training as well. And, but yeah, so that's what we, we were expecting to find was the ghost of this, this little boy. Uh, and I, I don't know really if we ever experienced a little boy or not. Um, did you capture but, EVPs on, on tape? No. And here's the, here's the thing though. At that point, I didn't really know much about EVPs. As a matter of fact, I didn't know anything about EVPs to where there's no sound. And then you pick up something on the recorder. We did not know that. And we, this is well before the, you know, the internet and everything that we could get to study. It had to be, you know, either a book that we bought when we went to a more urban area or what our, our library had. So the tape recorder was there to record things that we would hear. Um, that, that everybody would share and everybody would be able to hear that. I don't know. Does, does that make sense? You didn't understand at the time, and, and who did, that you would have to play it back and listen through hours of tape because EVPs, as we now know, aren't necessarily audible to the human ear live. You have to listen back. Exactly. I, I don't think that I have ever picked up an EVP that I heard live. You know, it was always you listen back to it, and you're right. If you do a, an investigation that goes over, you know, a day or two, uh, there is a lot of film to watch. There is a lot of audio to listen to. And, um, you know, I remember I was talking to Lloyd Arback once, and, and he told me that he basically had given up using uh, video because of the, the tremendous amount of time that you spent. And you can't fast forward through it. You have to watch it, you know, at its speed. And then if you see something, then you slow it down and, and all those things. So it uh, that, that made a lot of sense to me. And I guess it got to the point that I didn't take as much video after that either because he was right. And it did take a ton of time to do that. But we didn't know that as kids, you know, when we we're 17, 18 years old. And so we were um, – I remember we were listening to the, the, the station in Richmond, Virginia, very clear, and we had the uh, – uh, a Coleman lantern going, and for people that might not remember a Coleman lantern, it was uh, 
you know, you put a little propane or whatever in the bottom, a little oil, actually, not propane, uh, heating oil, and, and then it would uh, heat it, this mantle. It was really quite bright, and you had to pump it, you know, sometimes to keep it there. But it was really, really bright, causing no problems whatsoever. And so one of our friends was pretty much a comedian, and he was going through one of his routines of doing something I can't even remember. And we were basically just having a good time. And by this point, honestly, we had given up on finding ghosts there. We were just going through the motions, but we were just having a good time. You know, it was the summertime, and we were getting ready to scatter all our different ways. And so we were just kind of having, you know, that nice, you know, just opportunity. And again, we were not drinking. At that time, we'd never even heard of marijuana. Uh, at least, you know, if we did, it was on the, it was on the 630 news and it was just the, you know, scourge of the devil and, and all that stuff. So we, we really were not using that. And we had, you know, even though this, this place would become so, and, and still is so damaged by the opioid crisis that, but there was none of that. So that's to say that we all had, we were all in our clear minds and at least the three of them were pretty intelligent. Um, and so we were laying there and, and two of them, Two of the guys were laying down in their uh, sleeping bag and just listening to the nonsense that was going on. And actually, I was beginning to bed down too, but the the tape recorder just stopped. And I knew that we put really fresh batteries in it, so I got up and fooled with it, and I got it to going again. So we continued on with the nonsense, and then it stopped again. I did the same thing, and then it stopped for the third time. And when it did... These things happen, and this is one of those things, oh, believe it if you will, and I'm to the point that I'm no longer really caring if people believe it because I was there, and it happened to me, and I would have many other things happen to me throughout my my career with this. But anyway, uh, the tape recorder quit, the radio faded out, and a door, the front door slammed. I'm not talking about it closed. It slammed, and just as it did that, the the uh, the Coleman lantern faded down. So now we've lost a Coleman lantern, which is not electric. We've lost a tape recorder and a radio, which both were run by batteries. And so we're in the total dark, and then we hear heavy footsteps. Uh, and could this? Could we have been punked? You know. <laughs> I guess anything's possible, but we were way out in nowhere and with this place. And we heard the steps coming up, and it came up the first flight of steps and stopped. And then just as soon as it stopped, the lantern came back on, the tape recorder came back on, and the radio came back on. And so now we're at this point, we've heard the door slam, and if there's somebody or something that has walked up to the first flight. So that means in order for us to get out, we're going to have to go by that, you know? And at that point, there was no question as to whether or not we were going to go out. We were leaving. So we, it took us three trips to get everything up there. That's how comfortable we'd come there carrying coolers and, and all that kind of stuff. And we threw everything that wouldn't break out toward the truck out of the, out of the, <laughs> the third floor window. And, and so what we did then is that we had all the other stuff, and we kind of huddled. It looked like kind of a cartoon. We kind of huddled together and went down the steps 
together just as fast as we possibly could, not stopping to look around and see if we could find some stuff. And it was, quite frankly, one of the most scared that I've ever been. And, you know, I've really tried not to let the paranormal scare me too bad. And this is this kind of helped that, that it would help me get over that type of fear. Let me ask you, Alvin. So just because, sure. you know, we're, we're coming up on the, the break here in a few minutes. How did you do on that term paper that you had to write? Oh, uh, we got an A. <laughs> We did. I mean, we did real well. We had one of us was the the researcher writer, and uh, one of us was an interviewer, and it, we we did break it up, and uh, it, it, we we did real well. And and I was very pleased with that. I just wish that I still had a copy of that thing. Just before the uh, the break here, let me ask you quickly. Backing up to your childhood, you grew up in a in a haunted house. So tell me about what that house was like. Okay. It was, oddly enough, uh, it was built by my parents in 1960, and uh, we'd lived maybe five or six miles away from it. And the the site that that they chose and and they were able to buy was actually exactly on the same spot as the the first person who settled in the county, which was Wyoming County, West Virginia. It was right, it was John Smith, and we were right exactly on the same spot. And, uh, you know, they worked land and, and all those sorts of things. Uh, but what, um, uh, so it was a new house that we had built. There was no standing structure there. So it's kind of hard to explain as to why a brand new house would be haunted. But I hear that story, you know, you know, several times. I've heard it several times since then. And what we didn't know, but there was a big barn that was right across the, the, the road. When I say road, I'm talking about a dirt road. And it was uh, right across from us. And what we did not know is that there was a burial ground that was right there. And this was also a place where um, the Algonquin Indians would would come to hunt. They didn't live there because of the rugged terrain. It's really, really rugged in in southern West Virginia. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's quite beautiful. It's quite striking, but it's very rugged as as well. And and so we, um, there was somebody that bought a house and was going to build a house beside, they were going to tear down the barn and build them a house there. And then they realized there were graves there. And I remember as a kid watching the excavation folks come in and, and take those those caskets away that they would dig up. And some of them, when we say caskets, they were, they, you know, they were buried, you know, 150 years ago, maybe, and they were buried in a pine box. So sometimes they were taking big scoops of dirt, you know, which I'm, I'm assuming had bones and that sort of stuff in it. So that's the only way that we could think of as to why it may have been haunted. And let's see, you know, there was other reasons that, you know, we've really never discovered. But it was really, it was really interesting, and it was not frightening. This is, as a matter of fact, you know, this is not very original on any part of my family. But we referred to the ghost as Casper. Okay, Casper, the friendly ghost, and I think that was part of my my parents giving me a very friendly face on something that was paranormal, and you know, was told to respect it, you know, and and those sorts of things, which I did. But uh, we we grew up. We had, for example, the most consistently haunted thing that we had is that we had a rocking chair and where the rocking chair actually comes down into uh the rocker part i'm not really sure what you call those you know where it rocks back and forth on on (laughs) the wood that's curved and as you would rock back it would come out of the hole that the chair was attached to uh but the other three would hold tight and when you would rock forward it would snap back in and you could hear it 
And we heard that night after night after night, and you'd walk in the room, nothing, no movement in the chair, no more sounds. And as a matter of fact, you know, back in the day, you know, when they made me go to bed early, you know, I'm basically a night person, but they were struggling with that. But we would just listen and, and, you know, it would start and and one of my parents, usually my mother would yell out, there goes Casper. And so it was kind of actually a, a, you know, we did get kind of, I did anyway, kind of a warm feeling from having, I was an only child and sort of become a brother that I never had or a sister that I never had. And there were, there were many other things. Like there was, we was laying in bed one night, at least I was, and there was this tremendous crash. I mean, it sounded like every pot and pan that we had in the house had just been dumped all at once into the, the, the kitchen. And so I got up. This is one of those things, you know, we were still trying to catch it if we could and see it. And so uh, we went down there and I found my father was already there. And we just looked at each other. There was nothing, absolutely nothing out of place. And it was a loud, loud crash. So anyway, to this day, we haven't been able to figure out what that is. Dr. Alvin Prophet will share some more of his paranormal experiences and investigations right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Dr. Alvin Prophet. And uh, you were talking about your childhood home, which was located adjacent to an Indian burial ground. And you were sharing some experiences. So you had, I think, one more to add. Yeah, there's just one more. My uh, mother was a successful beautician and, I guess, entrepreneur. She did have a beauty shop that was inside our house. And, you know, sometimes in this particular area, we would get pretty substantial snows. And we were in, we were, we were in one of those. It was falling. I was just as thrilled as I could be because there was no school and all that. And so I was just watching TV in, in the house. And my mother came in, and she she didn't really joke around about things like this, but she said, I want you to get the largest knife you can find, and I want you to search the house. And she said, I'll tell you why in a minute. So I checked under the bed, checked everywhere, didn't find anything. And then what had happened was that she was working on one lady's hair, and she was still expecting one more to come in, and they had a divider in the room, and they heard the sliding glass door. It opened, and it shut, and both she and the other customer spoke to the person they assumed that it was, and there was nothing that, you know, nobody said anything back. There was no sound, so she stepped around, and there was no one there, but when she went to the door, there were footprints that came up the sidewalk and come in to the door and then left the door and went out in the yard, maybe 20 feet, and just stopped. And so you could go and you saw at the very beginning uh, of where the sidewalk started, you could see that just like somebody had gotten out of a car, but you could see the footprints and in the snow coming up there and then walking away. And so but we never, you know, we never was able to figure it out. I wanted to jump ahead and, and talk to you about the U.S. Coast Guard. You were vetted and you were given clearance yeah. to study paranormal yeah. events on the battleship U.S. North Carolina in Wilmington. First of all, how does one approach the U.S. Coast Guard t- 
and to get permission and 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 what sort of vetting did you go through well you know, I'm not 100% sure what they actually did or how they vetted me, but the way that it started is that there was a man by the name of Danny Bradshaw, and he's written a book on the haunted USS North Carolina because he was there. He, he was, in essence, its caretaker, caretaker and night watchman. I mean, he lived on the boat. And he would tell me things, you know, in the interview, like sometimes it gets so bad that I go out and I sleep in my car, but I sleep at the beginning where the tourists come in so nobody can get by me. But anyway, so I talked to him and asked him if I could have permission. He said, well, he wasn't at a, at a place that he could give me permission. So, and I'm forgetting the, the ranks and he, he gave me names and numbers of people that I should call. And finally, I reached a high enough echelon, I guess, within the system of the, of the National Guard. And I'm not sure what the, if it was a captain. I really, truly do not remember. But anyway, that came back through. He called me and said, you got it. You, you've been vetted and you're okay. You can come in. So I went over the first night and Mr. Bradshaw was there and it was lit up. Oh, I mean, it was just beautiful. It's just one of these things that's gorgeous. And, you know, my father served in, in the Navy and was in the uh, the entire theater in the in, in the Pacific when uh, we were fighting World War II and um, on an aircraft carrier. He served on an aircraft carrier. So I had heard stories, you know, about that. And so this is like a kid's dream come true. I mean, it's just two of us on this entire battleship. And so we were, and it was just lit up. I mean, it was like... They had lights everywhere, lights on down deck and, you know, up on the deck. And so we were walking around, and uh, he said, well, come on, I'll take you down here so we tourists don't come here. But let me show you down here. And we were walking down, and we began to hear things. When I say things, I don't know what they were, but it was metal on metal. And then we heard footsteps, and he just looked at me, and he said, you see? And then... Uh, he said, well, come on, we'll pay attention to that, but come on, I'm going to show you something. And then we began to take a few more steps. His light began to go out. And then he looked at me. He said, you know, when this happens, I turn around. And he said, and that's what I'm going to do. You can go if you want to. I turned around with him, and we walked back. And then I just interviewed him, and we sat. You know, we would go up into where the, uh, where, where the actual captain was when they, they were piloting the ship. And then, and he said, well, why don't you come back tomorrow night and, and we'll, we'll do it a little bit more for real. So I said, okay. So we came back and I'm driving up into the parking lot, a massive parking lot. This is a, a major tourist attraction as well. And there's no lights on whatsoever on the battleship except for one little portal, one of those little round windows, I guess, portal. And I, I walked up and Danny met me at the beginning of the steps and he said, I got it ready for you tonight. And then he said, I'm not going with you. You have the boat to yourself. And just think, just as a kid, though, I mean, now I'm, I'm given the chance to be on a battleship, for goodness sakes. You know, that's enough for the kid in me, the, the Walter Mitty inside of me. Uh, so I'm up and I have all the equipment I've got. I've got, you know, I've got two rather large bags I'm carrying. And I'm setting up meters and I'm setting up, you know, just whatever I had at that particular time, the cameras and the meters. And then uh, I got my flashlight and I grabbed one of the bags, which would had recorders and, and that. And so I was headed down and, and I, I began to go down the steps, you're going straight down from one deck to another deck to another deck. And I was down six, maybe seven decks. And it was just so exciting to me. And then all of a sudden, no warming. 
no warning. It didn't. My, my flashlight just went out completely. It didn't fade. It just went out. Now, if you're six decks down in a battleship, there is no source of light unless you have electricity, and there's no electricity. So the only source of light that I had was my equipment. And I thought, well, okay, I can use one of my cameras had a light on it that like it would highlight what it is that you were going to shoot. So I went, and it didn't work. And then as I went through, and I'm doing this in the dark, and I'm trying to find things, nothing worked. Absolutely nothing worked, and except for one little thing, and that was a little bitty flashlight, keychain flashlight, that my daughter had given me. And I just, I just, it was on my keys, and I pushed that, and that light came on. It was a very, very, very little bit of light. So I just made sure again with that light, there's nothing going to work. Nothing did work. So now I'm thinking, if this thing goes out, I'm in a world of hurt. Because cell phones do not reach anywhere. They, they do not come out of this, all this metal and stuff. And they told me that. Danny told me, you, you will find yourself that if you get in trouble on the boat, we won't be able to find you until the morning in all likelihood. We won't even look for you, probably, because we'll still think you're doing your thing. And the, the dangerous part of that is not necessarily a ghost or something paranormal. If you were walking along, just all of a sudden you come into where those stairs, I mean, the, the ladders go down and in the hatchways. You would fall, uh, you know, and it, there's nothing but metal. It would be pretty much be a death fall. I, I just can't see any other way around right, that. Right. But anyway, so I had everything on me, and I was just, I finally did find where I could start my climb back up. And I got up to about the second deck, and things began to start coming on again. It was just the weirdest thing. And this is one of the things that made me believe. I may never be able to prove this experience to anybody but I know what happened, and uh, did I make any of it happen? No. I am thankful to be out of there without hurting myself, seriously. So that was, in addition to the fun I was having and being on a battleship all by myself, um, you, you know, that just really was, was one of the most enlightening things that I've ever had happen to me. Aside from the lights going out and your equipment not working, and I presume the batteries were all charged and ready to go. Was there any other yeah. unusual activity? Uh, did you capture any uh, any other evidence? Now, I was still shooting uh, video at that time, and I had a, a recorder, uh, a video recorder that was set up in the captain's, or the command deck, in the command deck, and they said that was probably the most haunted place on the boat. And you could hear sounds, but nothing that was, you know... That really sounded ominous, or, or it's it just like pops and cracks. And so I took it back over, and I let Danny hear that and see that. And he said, yeah, he said, I hear that all the time, and we cannot explain it. Except in that hatchway that I'm talking about, there was an orb. There was actually two orbs that, that as you look down, and I took the picture that way, that were there. One was beyond the ropes. They had, in certain places, they had safety nets, not ropes, safety nets that would catch someone if they fell. And I, I took one of those that had an orb under it and then an orb above it. And, and as well, and I know that there's a real debate in orbs doesn't mean anything because they are simply droplets of water and specks of dust and, you know, things like that. Uh, snow, anything like that is captured, and it comes back as an orb, especially dust. 
And, you know, and, and most, I think, paranormal investigators buy into that. Certainly the camera companies buy into that. But there are some things that you can't explain because imagine as you're taking flash photography, that digital flash photography, and you have one of those orbs that actually has a trail on it. Do you imagine how fast that piece of dust had to be going to make a trail? I mean, because it's just like, what, one five hundredth or once in a second, one five hundredth of a second that the flash goes on and off and, the, you know, the aperture opens and closes. And so I never really did buy into that. I'm one of the few holdouts that thinks that, you know, there's a little bit more here than, than meets the eye. And we should we should maybe pay a little more attention to those as we could. Got to jump in here, Alvin. We're going to take another time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the time you were recruited by a major church denomination to investigate possible demonic activity right here on the conspiracy show my name is richard Serrett. don't go away pin numbers passcodes social insurance numbers if they make you wonder how private they are here's two more numbers 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740 Dr. Elvin Prophet stays with us. I understand you were involved in an exorcism at, at one time, or, or kind of an exorcism. Tell me about that. Well, I saw a man that I thought might be demonic, but I was not going to, or maybe would ha- had, had some evil entity attached to him, and I wasn't about to tell him that I can get rid of that. I just said, you might need to, to seek a higher authority on this. And then anyway, I got a call from his wife one night, and she said, you got to please, please help him. He's in He's in the closet. He's not referring to himself by his right name, and he's saying he's going to kill himself. And will you please talk him down? And so she took the phone in, and Richard, it was like talking to somebody that I'd never seen before. And he was referring to his, his name as, as he was a German. He transformed himself into a German, and, you know, I, maybe Nazi, maybe not. I'm not sure. But at any rate, uh, I, I began to talk to him, and I couldn't. So then I did something that's very uncharacteristic of me. I said, I want to talk to the entity that's inside of you. And things begin to change. And uh, finally, I, I, you know, I said, I'm not going to try to talk anybody out of, you know, I'm not going to try to do an exorcism. But anyway, I got to the point that I was afraid for his life. I was afraid he had a lovely family. And I was afraid there was going to be some harm. So I said, I want to speak to that entity. Uh, voice changes. Uh, the intonation of his words changed, and then after talking to the, that, you know, for him for a while, I finally said, I demand that you come out of him and leave this family alone. And basically, I heard the phone drop and silence. And then he got back on, and he said, well, I, I'm in the closet. Why am I in the closet? And I thought, well, I got the guy back. But I never, you know, in, in some ways, I heard the phone crackle. And I was just thinking, what if that thing came into me? I don't want to be the, the priest in the exorcist where I'd grab a hold of it and jump out the window. <laughs> exactly. Let me just get a quick sure. take from you on, on this. And that is the, the idea that from a religious standpoint, uh, Christians and other denominations or other religions may also believe that there's no such thing as ghosts or spirits. What we are witnessing are sometimes referred to as familiars. It's part of a, a demonic uh, deception. In other words, there are yes. no there are no hauntings. There are only demonic deceptions. How do you feel about that? 
Uh, well, you know, first of all, I find that interesting uh, for this reason, and I'll have to actually give Josh Warren, uh, Joshua Warren, the good credit for this. For uh, I was doing actually one of his shows with him at, at one time back when we, we used to associate and work with each other. And during one of the breaks, he, he told me, he said, you know, I don't understand that Christians have a hard time believing in the paranormal because the Bible is the most paranormal book that's ever been written. And he's absolutely right about that. He talks about witches. He talks about ghosts. Now, it might, but it doesn't say demons that are ghosts. It says ghosts. And uh, so my thinking on that is that if that there is so much, you know, they also say we're, we're alone in the universe, which I just can't even fathom that from any direction. You know, if we are God's best work, uh, he, he probably just should <laughs> let us be a draft and try it again. I mean, because we have a whole lot of weaknesses as, as human beings. I do especially. But anyway, I would say to those people is that, you know, I'm studying life after death. That's what I'm studying, and that's what you proposed that is true. We either go to heaven or we go to hell, but it is life after death. And I said I'm trying to establish that in, in a scientific method. And it would not do anything to my faith or my faith if I was able to actually sit down and have an apparition talk to me. It would not diminish my faith in that. It just means that God's big enough to be dealing with the whole universe that he could also deal with different dimensions. And maybe when we die, we go to a different dimension. I don't have any idea. I'm not afraid of death, but I don't want to welcome it either. So my response to him, I think, would just be that, you know, just because that there's something you don't understand, that doesn't mean that it's demonic. Something that I think is demonic is where you might have two school guys uh, get automatic weapons and go in Columbine High School and, and blow people away. And that I would, you know, we could talk some evil there and, you know, and all the other things, the kid at Parkway. I mean, we could just go through all that sort of stuff. But anyway, I, I think that uh, in studying uh, this, that, that Christians would be kind of interested in the fact. And, you know, there's a lot of Christians that, that are interested. You know, as a matter of fact, I have a whole lot of people when I finally, after Our State Magazine, run a uh, uh, actually a four or five page article on me. Um, I, I had no choice but just to come out and say, yep, that's what I do. My colleagues around me already knew that. And some think it's just weird. Others, but you would think not, but you would, you'd be surprised at the people that will come to you and say, now, you don't think I'm crazy, but, and then they tell you this. And that just sort of, I take some comfort in that. And, you know, I don't really necessarily think of anybody as crazy. I was taught not to do that as well. Maybe they operate in a different manner than I do. But I think that would be my response to that, is that the, the, the Bible is the most paranormal book you can get. Very well put. All right, Alvin, we'll uh, take one final time out, come back and uh, talk about some of the, the places of renown that you've been fortunate enough to investigate, including Loch Ness, Oxford University, the Devil's Stair Steps in North Carolina. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Dr. Alvin Prophet. Less people think that your investigations have been uh, limited or restricted to Appalachia. Uh, you have you have traveled the globe. Tell me about, uh, for example... And uh, we went to Scotland. And if I may interject this, this is one of my thrills of life, too. 
we went to where uh, there were ghost tours that were going through uh, the underground in Edinburgh. And people might not know what I'm talking about. It's not like underground as in the rock underground or the English underground. It was actually catacombs where people lived during the days of of the, the bloodshed and, you know, of of all that that was going on in Scotland and Edinburgh at the time. And these people lived their whole lives down there, some of them never seeing the sun. And uh, it was something that I had studied but not really appreciated until actually I took the first tour. And I went to the tour people, and I said, you know, I'm an investigator, and I'd like to take a look at this. And they said, well, we can't let you be in there by yourself. But what you can do is you get between tours, and you can follow one out of their sight, and before the other comes, when you hear them coming, you, you do that. So I did that on my first night. And um, then uh, the next night, I, I came up and I talked to them again. They said, well, listen, why don't you join the last tourist group that's coming through? You can be, we will let you be the last person out. And as long as you promise to close and lock the door, I swear to goodness, it sounds like you know, you're going to grandmama's house, but make sure you lock the door when you leave. Uh, and just the the magnitude of that, once everybody was gone, the silence and the dark and the history that just went on around me. And I was taking pictures, and I got some extremely good light activity, which might mean beams of light that, that are shooting down. And that was not at all present when, you know, that I saw, but you would see that it was evidently something that was captured by flash and it was moving at an incredible rate of speed. I caught two or three of those and I also caught orbs of different colors. Most of the orbs are like white or pale or gray. And, but these, I, I captured one or two that was just really bright green. And so, yeah, I, I didn't really hear anything and I didn't see anything with my eye. But just being in the underground of Edinburgh was just an absolute thrill for me. You are one of the few people that has ever developed and taught a course on psychical science research. You did that at Appalachian State University. Uh, tell me about that yes, course. Sir. Well, naturally, my, my field of, uh, of, I guess, expertise or whatever would be educational leadership. But we have a program at App State, which I think is an excellent program that they have their professors if they want, it's strictly volunteer, that you can design a course that has all the rigor of being a course uh, that, that is worthy of being taught at App State, but that um, you can divide it on, you can, you, know, which you, you design it based on something that you like. And naturally, I thought, well, I'll give that a shot. And so I wrote up uh, a, a really scholarly document as to, you know, well, why should we study the paranormal? One was, well, how about people like this, like Carl Jung? You know, he studied the paranormal. William James, he studied the paranormal. And then you could keep going through this this list of famous people who believed in Thomas Alva Edison was actually working on a, a phone that would reach the dead when he died. That's something, I guess, that they, they try to keep quiet a little bit. But anyway, I designed the course, did the literature review on the whole thing, and explained why I thought it was necessary because that there's a lot of kids out there now, and they go, you know, they go off on these haunted, you know, we're going to go see if we can see a ghost type of thing. And there is some things that's inherently dangerous about that, 
And, you know, I've been, I've been a speaker at, you know, middle schools and high schools and actually other universities to where, you know, I talked about it's one of the things that I would talk about. But the class also has to be built into the research component. And here is where my high school teachers just come back in space where they just said, when, when I, w- I would go in and I'd say, we got to research this. That means you've got to keep records. You've, you've got to find a way to research it. And I let them pick out their particular topic and, uh, but anyway, it was. It's called a first year seminar, and it's worth three hours credit, and it would go toward the degree. So this was actually a class they were taking for their degree as a general elective. And so uh, every time I taught it, it was just it, it was filled up. People couldn't get into it, and so I just really had a good time teaching that. And you know, it's like I can I, most of the time I taught graduate students who are working on their their master's or the EDS specialist degree or their doctorate. And then coming in and teaching who were predominantly freshmen, I got a chance to teach uh, kids who are going, what if, what if? And then you you go with the graduate students, and it's more of a theme of it is. This is the way that it is. But anyway, uh, just one quick story on that. I had a young man who was really, really uh, very interested in the course. And he was wanting to get into remote viewing. And I thought, well, that's a great topic to study. So I approved it. And uh, he said, you know, where I'm going I'm gonna, to I'm gonna try to remote view to where my sister lives. And she's in the, the Coast Guard. And I'm going to try to do that. And then, you know, a couple of weeks went by, and then he came up. He stayed after class. He said, I don't know what to do. He said, I've got a letter from the Coast Guard that said I would cease and desist on studying remote viewing as far as one of their properties are concerned. And so I thought, well, number one, did his sister actually bring it up to one of her superiors? Or do they go through all the mail or whatever it was? But uh, he he went on to write about uh, spontaneous combustion of humans. But anyway, I thought that was really, really interesting that the, the Coast Guard jumped in and said, no, because as you know, uh, that is something that our military industrial complex has, has been studying for a while is how to remote view. And, uh, but anyway, I just found that that was very amusing. Yeah. I'm wondering if somehow their psychic spies detected that he was remote, remotely viewing one of their locations. Maybe that's how they found that's out. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. You know, I have never thought of that. And you could absolutely be right on that. Wouldn't that be something? And that's that's another thing that I have. If there's a complaint about studying the paranormal, it's that people, you know, organizations, institutions don't tend to share everything that they get. And it's all, you know, you know, that it's just for me. This is going to be for me. And there's not many ways to make a living, you know, studying the paranormal. And I guess I can understand that. But I think that sometimes we are shooting the collective study uh, of the, the psychical sciences by not cooperating. Like I did with those three kids back in high school, I was taught to do that. You you cooperate and share. So uh, anyway, that's, that's actually, that's a fascinating take on that, Richard. So uh, in conclusion, uh, Elvin, after nearly a lifetime investigating and researching the paranormal, are you any closer to identifying perhaps what might be behind all this? You know, I think what I am closer to is a peace of mind that I have because I have verified many times over that um, it's real. 
it happens to me. And but some of the other things that come into play is Diane Archangel. I don't know if you know of her or you may have actually interviewed her, but she did some work uh, a number a few years ago, and she did uh, she she took. Uh, Carl Jung's work in, in the 16 different personality types, also called Myers-Briggs. And she she administered that to, to a, a very large population. And what she got back was that certain, and I won't be able to tell you which one there are, there are 16 you know, different mindsets, but that certain mindsets were more capable of seeing, hearing, or believing in the paranormal as the others. And so I, I've just always thought that, that that's fascinating. So I think some of the things that I, I've come up with is the fact that everybody is not going to experience the paranormal. And even if they did, they're going to explain it away because it's not within their paradigm of thinking. And I can understand that. But I, I think, you know, just from my guess, is it's, it's, it's entities in a different dimension. And for just one moment or two, that they can come through and, and communicate with a person that's actually on the uh, another dimension trying to reach out. To answer your question, I have to say, no, I haven't been able to prove it, what it is one way or the other, but I am really satisfied that it exists. And uh, I've long ago quit trying to prove to the world that this exists. It's enough that I know it for myself. I will be happy to talk to anybody about it. And I, I try to be as helpful as I can. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Prophet, and, and thank you for, uh, for hanging out for the last hour. It's been just a delightful experience talking with you. Okay, my thanks to Carlos Kajina and Ryan White. Back next week with journalist David Menzies from Rebel News. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. And what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Or at least up the stairs. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.